Welcome, everyone. Uh, <clears throat> this is the, um, I don't know how many, <laughs> it's the third subject, third talk in a series of four of eight classes, half of which are talks. <laughs> now, how many talks are there? <laughs> so uh, there's going to be uh, there's a talk and a um, discussion, talk, discussion, talk, discussion, and we're on the third talk. <clears throat> and um, actually, I don't know how you're relating to the series, but I like it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I clap at the end. <laughs> no, I actually, it's. Um, it's, it's any talk that I have to look at and really challenge myself, I find to be very useful. And um, this series has challenged me because, um, you know, especially the next two uh, talks. The, the last two talks, it's possible to sort of stay on the side of the pool and, uh, and um, just sort of watch the water. You know, the first two talks, uh, the illusions are what we take life to be in one way when they're completely, it's completely different in, a, in reality. So it's a misperception of reality, but it's a deliberate misperception of reality. It's not something uh, that we don't know. And uh, so when we say uh, things change, uh, yeah, I know that, right? You know that. But you don't do any, but we in general, we don't, really act in accordance with that law. So the first illusion that we talked about was the illusion that we take things to be permanent that were inherently impermanent. I can stand on the side of the pool and not get wet with that one. I mean, I, yeah, yeah, the water is changing, but I'm on safe ground here. And the second one even, uh, the second illusion that we uh, spoke about was the um, taking things which inherently could not satisfy one as satisfying me. And of course, that goes into uh, what, what it is that we want from life. What, what meaning do, are we deriving from life? How is it that we get involved with life? And what are we ultimately looking for in terms of satisfaction with life? Uh, and hopefully that talk began to intimate that uh, the things and forms and expressions of the world were not ultimate, ultimately satisfying. Why were they not? Because they weren't lasting. You reach out, you grasp it, and it changes into something else. I know that, right? I know that. So maybe I just won't put that much weight into my new car, you know, and I won't wake up panicky at 2 o'clock in the morning, looking out to see if anybody scratched it or sideswiped it on. So I, I can stand on the side of the pool and look at the water. Things change. Happiness isn't in the forms of the world. Didn't Jesus say that? Regardless of what religion we come from, it's probably embedded somewhere in our books. Lived with those sayings. But now we change can't stand on the pool on this, the third illusion. We've got to dive in. We've got to go into it and really embrace it, if we haven't already. And what we find is that as we approach any one of these illusions, 
they will take us into all of the illusions. Each one is a hologram of all the others. So, and this one, I think, uh, begins to um, really challenge our perceptions of the world. And, and so this one is on taking the momentary displays of the world as being continuous. And because it's challenging and because it is a radically different way of looking at the world, I invite us to really move with the subtlety of the language and the um, examples as ways to really look at our own life here. <clears throat> for, for this is about time. And anytime we talk about time, we have to uh, reperceive ourselves in relationship to the world. Because most of us, I think, have a sense of, of time as just sort of the the sequence of, of moments, sequential moments. If you pile them up like snapshots, you sort of get a sense of time. I mean, I was here this hour, an hour ago I was at home. You can just kind of build your whole history in relationship to the sequences of the past and what your expectations are of the future. And so you get a sense that you somehow time is sort of outside of us. It's not really in us, but it's sort of happening to us in some way, right? Is that what we'd say about time? Well, we've got to look at it a completely different way. And so it's so difficult. It's a little bit try like trying to look at the air that's between you and I rather than at the forms on the other side of the space, looking at the space itself, trying to perceive the space of things. And that's why I think uh, when we talk about uh, anything that uh, sort of carries us along, uh, like fish and water, we're not, we can't really see the substance of the how, how we're being carried along in it. And that's the difficulty in talking about this particular one. But I still think it has an awful lot to say to us. And so uh, again, I invite, I invite us to, to look at this, um, this topic in a careful way. <clears throat> now, um, being kind of, I, I'm, very, I'm very interested in science. Because I think science, uh, scientists both have um, an objective view of the world, which can inform us as to how and what the nature of the world is. And somehow they sort of remain or seem to remain um, insulated from the very objectivity that they, they talk about. And uh, what I'm asking all of us to do is to, uh, to cross that ob uh, objective subjective barrier. But it's always interesting to see what the objective reality is to the scientist. And I was picking up the uh, Sunday newspaper, and there was a big article on black holes. It says, scientists learn a lot by seeing nothing in black holes. <laughs> and uh, it says, um, a black hole is a collapsed star whose core is a point of infinite density. Its event horizon is a gravitational point of no return, 
a one-way membrane through which matter and light leave the known universe forever. And if I could just read this one paragraph, it has something to do with time. But no one has previously seen what happens to a piece of matter as it swirls into this so-called event horizon, an invisible boundary that is the defining feature of a black hole. The event horizon is a gravitational point of no return, a one-way membrane through which matter and light leave the known universe forever. At the event horizon, trapped material crosses into a twilight realm where time and space no longer have any practical meaning and the laws of known physics break down. I like the fact that the the laws of physics break down. That says something to me about the nature of these things. If they didn't break down, if they were continuous, then we could rest upon them as somehow the permanency of the world. Well, permanency rests in the laws of things. But the fact that there is a breaking point in which they all, everything kinds of crumbles together, in which kind time, time, and no matter how much we, what we think about it, crumbles, falls away. And in fact, um, scientists have shown that the faster you go, the slower time becomes. So that at the point when one reaches close to the speed of light, the duration of a moment, not subjectively, but objectively, changes completely. If somebody watches that person, you know, they, the subjective and the objective are very different. So that, that, that to me, I don't want to get into, you know, this isn't a science uh, classroom, but it's, it's just, it says something of, of how we relate to the fundamental laws of the universe as not being something we can rely upon. They're mutable, from my perspective. And they may even be just assumptions that we've placed on. They're a group uh, conspiracy. We've, we've agreed on certain fundamental laws, and through that agreement, everyone sees it from that perspective. That's going a little step too far, but I. I think what we're, we're intimating here is that what we've counted on to be so practical and reliable may not be. So what does this have to do, what does time have to do with us, you see? What, why, why is this an, an illusion? Why, why are we saying that the sense of continuity of time in your life is wrong? It's an illusion. And that it's really, the universe is a momentary display, moment after moment, a momentary display, not a continuous thing. There are occasions in one's practice, if you did very refined and prolonged meditation, in which you could begin to see big chunks of discontinuous time. Your, your mind blacks out. It blacks out and comes back in, blacks out, comes back in, in a, in a kind of strobe light effect on things. You can actually, you actually perceive that. Buddha said that in general, the strobe light effect is something like uh, billions and billions of times per second. That it rises and passes away, that the universe is being formed billions and billions of times a second. 
and that we just don't see the uh, blackout points. We just see it as a continuous thing, a continuous stream. So just for an, ex um, an example of how time can change and what time is in relationship to it, uh, just for a moment, close your eyes and just get a sense of yourself sitting on whatever seat you're sitting on. Now, get a feeling for how your body is resting upon the floor or the bench or the cushion and just mentally describe what that sensation is. Soft, hard, cold. Just get a sense of what that sensation actually is and how you would form it in terms of words. If you're telling somebody about the experience. And now, just go to the experience of it itself without the word. And notice how vastly different the words that you form to describe the experience is between, from the actual experience itself. That the word hardness just doesn't grasp what hardness really feels like. And that as long as we describe it with words, we have it fixed, don't we? We can tell people how it was, what, what the class was like, how comfortable we were. We can describe our whole experience through the word. But when we actually go to the experience of what those words are indicating, the whole world sort of breaks down around that. The experience itself doesn't hold a meaning. And therefore, it doesn't hold time in some way. When we take that experience and form a word associated, we can then have a context out of which that word has meaning and relationship to other words and to other experiences. But just the experience itself doesn't hold time. Just sitting there. And some of you, I sure have had the experience that when you sit, your subjective view of time changes entirely. It may be very much longer than what you thought 45 minutes would be, or it could be very, sh much, uh, very short, much shorter than what we thought 45 minutes could be. And whether it's longer or shorter depends upon how often or frequently we're referencing time in relationship to that experience. Like, well, I have 15 minutes to go. I've got 14 minutes to go. I've got 13 <laughs> minutes and 30 seconds to go. So that every time we look out, the sense of exasperation and impatience is implanted along with the experience of time itself. But if we, and at other times, we lose all reference point of time and we just soak in the experience itself, and it, the 45 minutes can literally seem like a few minutes. Others of us have had experiences in which we've communicated or spoken to somebody, 
and we have so, been so interested or so absorbed in what was going on, what was being communicated, or the listening aspect of it, we lose our, lose our context of time. And that time sustains itself somehow from keep constantly referencing things, doesn't it? I mean, if I'm really listening to something, and I'm not constantly referencing what I'm going to do next, or what I have been doing, or whether I'm impatient in this moment, or glancing at my watch, the absorption into the experience itself makes time seem very fleeting. Haven't we had that experience? And all of us have had the experience of being very bored with what's going on, and it's just, oh, God. Because we keep referencing it. Moment after moment, we keep referencing it. So there are the two doors that we have available to us. I remember a Wizard of Id comic, and my namesake, Rodney, <laughs> who is kind of a, um, the simpleton, Uh, and this sort of the servant of the king was down in a corridor and, and he had done something uh, wrong and so the king was making him choose between two doors at the end of this corridor and the king said Rodney one of those doors contains a monster that's uh, ravenously hungry and will eat you immediately and the other door contains a beautiful seductive woman uh, and you have to choose one of those doors. And Rodney looks up at the king and says, I choose the one with a beautiful woman. <laughs> <laughs> so we have two doors. We have the door of experience, or we have the door of words. Behind the door of words contains all the things that we're most used to in terms of our world. Solidity of form and solidness, individuality. It contains time and sequential sequences thereof. It contains aging, of course, birth and death. It contains all those things as well. It contains virtually our whole life. And we've chosen, most of us, the word the door of the word. On the other corridor, behind the other door, is something vastly different. That's the corridor of the timeless. The corridor in which referencing isn't what we're focused on doing, but that there's a far more union of heart behind that corridor. And we're constantly walking down this corridor, moment after moment, and say, I'm choosing that one. I'm choosing this one. I'm choosing this one. We keep going to the right-hand door, not the left. We make that choice. The problem with making the choice to constantly go with the word rather than the experience, is that the word perceives the world as being continuous and permanent and happy. And we like that. We like the thoughts that behind this door, there's a beautiful woman. 
or man, that behind this door lies something that is going to entice us and keep us going, keep us motivated. And we perceive that the other door may be something that will tragically alter our life forever. And who wants that? And yet, by maintaining the sense of illusion of things, by choosing this right-hand door again and again, we're constantly caught in the real reality that things do change, and that happiness is not forever, and that the life is a momentary display and not continuous. It's inevitable that the word can't hold up against the reality of the situation, that somehow it's going to falter and cave in, that somehow the whole world that we create in choosing that door is going to collapse. The word is not going to sufficiently carry us through the impact of reality. Reality is going to win out. It's got to, because it's true. But we keep believing that the word is going to carry us through. And so we believe, and in believing in the word, we believe in the component of time. This is getting a little subtle. <laughs> but I hope you're getting a sense of things. If things were continuous, if things were permanent and continuous, why would we worry? Why worry? The fact that we worry shows that we know they're not. We're trying to fool ourselves. So where does time come from? Why does it seem continuous to us? <coughs> Because we choose we choose to think our way through life. That's basically it. We keep meeting the reality of change and impermanence and discontinuity with the abstraction of a word that fits over that and makes it continuous. The word me or I, any word actually, makes something permanent because a word doesn't change. My concept of the world remains the same day after day. But the fact of the world changes immensely. And we keep acting on the world from the history of what has worked for us before. And we keep looking as we do when we sit down in our meditation. We keep looking at our watch. And we keep meeting every situation from what the previous history of the similar situation was like for us. And then we keep acting in accordance with what, what, what has worked with us in the past. We just uh, purchased a cat. And the cat is three years old. 
And I don't know what its history has been, but it probably hasn't been a real smooth history because the cat is like one of the most frightened animals I've ever seen. It just flees around the house, hiding behind things. And, um, and it, it must have been males predominantly that did something to this cat, abused it or something. Because as I approach it, its eyes just light up in terror. And as I reach out to pet it, it just cringes. And so it's been two months. And, I'm th and yet the house, there is no threat to this cat at all in this house. I mean, we're not doing it. <laughs> it's a completely new world for this cat. Completely new world. And this cat, if it ever just could get over the old world, <laughs> it would find a very lovely environment to live in. It would be petted a lot. It would be fed. But it doesn't. It carries its old world with us. And it sees me, and it just, I don't know, you know, maleness is like, its eyes are just. <laughs> but least we blame the cat. We all look through these eyes, the eyes of our history. We carry the storybook of our history into each and every situation we go into. And it's as if we just, we don't ever see anything new through the experience of what is occurring. We see it through the textbook of the lessons we've learned, the harsh lessons, <coughs> the difficult ones. All it takes is one meeting with somebody, and you've got them locked and fixed forever. And even if you're separated for 20 years, you still have them locked and fixed forever. And you meet them again and think, my god, they've changed. But not in our minds. Go to a high school reunion sometime. See, our desires are to have everything in place and accountable. Because that way I can feel safe about everything. And so if I can freeze things into the abstract world of thought and just carry that thought about you, I never have to really meet you again. And so what I do is I carry the time. I carry time with me. And although years may pass, I don't allow the past to pass. And then I meet you as if it were the first time or the last time we met. And we keep freezing. We keep doing this because we think and maintain that the world can be maintained continuously. It doesn't have to change. I just hold on and freeze. And then it'll all be safe. It's particularly reliable when I know it to be what it was. It's unreliable when it's going to be something different than it was. So I choose the right-hand door to make it what it used to be. Do we see that? But the fact is that it's discontinuous universe. So time, the way we keep time at bay 
is that we put ourselves outside of time. That's why we can keep time being safe as well. Time is not something that's happening to me. I'm not really aging. I'm not, because as I age, I'm going to have to lose myself in death. So I'll keep, my, I'll keep it all out there. And that's why we feel so lonely, is that we've sort of painted ourselves in the corner of a room, in the room of our mind, away from everything. Even time is a product that's out there. We talk about wasting time and saving time, like it was something we were collecting as a capitalist in the market economy. Waste time and save time. But is time something different from this moment? Is it something, can we even say that it's happening to me? One way we try to keep time very distinct and separate is by fracturing it. You know, we have our work time and our family time. We have our time at home. We have our sitting time. And one part or one component, one compartmentalization better not cross over into the other. I mean, if I'm caught in a traffic jam and I was supposed to be home, well, then I've got all kinds of problems coming at me because this is not where I'm supposed to be. But is time like that? Can we box it in? What happens when we're sitting thinking that I'm going to spend the next 45 minutes sitting and our son or daughter comes crashing into the room? Wants to do something else, asks us a question. See, that doesn't fit into what we have defined, how we have defined this particular 45 minutes, and someone else is intruding upon my definition of this particular time. Or if work, if I have to stay at work beyond the eight hours of legitimate pay, then it's intruding on my family time. And we have one part of our lives intruding on another part of our lives. And we fractured and compartmentalized all these different areas of ourselves that we try to keep very separate and distinct. But if you look at it, we carry time with us. It's not so, three o'clock is where you happen to be at th when the clock strikes three. Three o'clock isn't something that you have to find or be somewhere to meet an appointment. It arises in the moment. It doesn't pressure the moment. And in fact, who we are and time arise together. <coughs> time arises with us in the moment. It's not outside. It's not an intruder. We don't have to cut ourselves off from it. And when we begin to just allow the expressions of ourselves to come and go in a very kind of organic way without constantly referencing what we're supposed to be doing in this moment or the anxiety of trying to get somewhere or the regret and remorse of having done something that we weren't supposed to do, 
then the whole thing takes on a more liquid, fluid form in which the continuous universe has begun to be seen as just here and now. For things can only be continuous if they've had a past. And nothing holds that past but your memory. Let the memory go, which is just thinking about the past, and we have nothing, nothing to reference this moment with as being better than or worse than anything else. And when we're not referencing it, we're absorbed within time itself, just like when we're sitting and we're not constantly looking at our watch. Suddenly the expression of the moment just arises. It's just this, just spontaneously happening. Not contrived, not planned, not rehearsed. But the whole thing arises based on conditions. Just the conditions of things. Because nothing independently exists. This is the Buddhist teaching. Time doesn't independently exist. Can't. Everything exists because of conditions. Out of conditions, things exist. It's like the rain in Seattle doesn't independently exist from the conditions that create the rain. The humidity, there has to be a certain humidity, it has to be a certain temperature or it would snow. Whatever the environmental lows and highs of what creates rain, those all have to be present. So too, for time to be created, for us to objectify time, for us to make something into time, conditions have to be there. Time doesn't exist outside of the moment. It's not independent of who we are. It is who we are. And it arises spontaneously. So we start with wholeness, you see. If we just connect with the experience, not with what the experience will mean to us in the future or not what the experience, if on some kind of scale it's getting better or it's getting worse, but just the experience of something. So we're not referencing it as something that is going to continue or has continued for such a long time, but just the experience itself. So we're, we've gone from the side of the pool into the water. We can't look at the thing and say, oh, this is very nice, time is very interesting. We have to dive in. We have to allow ourselves to be soaked into the moment without any reference of this moment being or going in a certain direction or becoming something, but just to dive into the moment, dropping all the barriers that create the time sequencing of past and future, just to dive into the moment, just to be submerged into the now, 
so that it, everything that arises is just coming. It's just expressing itself. And that's all. Not a big, heavy drama. Not 3,000 years of retreating. Just the willingness to be who and what we are in this moment. Without any fear. Why should there be fear? Fear only exists in terms of time. What we think or anticipate this moment will become. No guilt or remorse because that only exists in relationship to what our past life was about. Just now. And that now, for those of you who would say, but where are the ethics? Where is the ethics? How do you know what you're doing in the now? Because the now is only filled with the heart. It's not filled with the mind. We move beyond time. We move beyond the mind. We move into the heart, the realm of the heart. And we don't have to constantly check the heart. It knows its way. Its way is affection. Its way is spontaneity. Its way is creativity. Its way is natural. Hi, how are you? Fine, how are you? That's it. (laughs) Can we sit for a minute or two? With the understanding that time does not exist outside of the moment. It is always contained within it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.